What is the gospel of God? St. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel or that he was set apart for the gospel. What did he mean by the gospel? Do all Christians agree on what this means? What does the gospel require of us? What must we believe? What must we do? Or does it even require that we do anything except have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, as Dr. Hall and I begin a long series of study on the book of Romans, this is where we'll begin today on Deep in Scripture. Well, greetings. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, as I mentioned in the opening, we're going to start today a long study of the book of Romans. And uh, we'd love to have you a part of this program. You can join us on the internet, uh, deepinscripture.com. Please send us any emails at dis at chnetwork.org. That's the website of the Coming Home Network International. We'd love to, to have your thoughts and comments, and we'd love to have you as a part of this program, maybe even suggest some scriptures. We're going to look at an email in a moment. You can also subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or join us on Twitter at CH Network. Uh, Ken, thank you for joining me today uh, from thank good old Illinois. <laughs> thank you, Marcus. It's great to be with you again. And it's, I'm excited about starting our study of Romans. Uh, when I think about our intent for this program, that uh, being deep in Scripture, uh, as well as deep in history, draws us deeper to Jesus Christ and His Church, uh, that it seems to me that this book of Romans has a unique key. If, if we desire to do whatever we can to fulfill our Lord's call in John 17 towards unity, because, Ken, I mean, this book, Romans itself, not only uh, in many ways uh, establishes the foundation for this unity in Jesus Christ, but also can be a barrier between Christians. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. And I think it was, it may have been Luther, but somewhat of the Lutheran or Reformed tradition who said that Romans is the Magna Carta of the Christian life, that is, and it's the great proclamation of the gospel. So it's going to challenge all of us as we look into the letter to the Romans exactly what the gospel is because it's really important. You know, in, as a lead into that, one of the things that I remember when I was teaching in a Presbyterian seminary is that when students would come into their first year of seminary after they had, you know, been to college and had a great experience with Christ perhaps, they began to learn more deeply what theology was, and then they began to have a question, well, well, then what's the gospel? I mean, I thought I was accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and following him and trying to be good and trying to have fellowship with other Christians and proclaiming the gospel. And now I'm learning so much more about what it is and what's the gospel. And so, uh, you know, my advice to them was, wait, keep working at it. You'll see it both in its small parts and in its big dimensions. And I think that's what we're going to discover in the book of Romans is that it is once simple, but also very profound. <laughs> Reminds me of an old joke, although I'm not going to say it exactly right, but I'm kind of on the, on the sly here trying to remember this joke, but it was about a man who, who 
one would say, you know, it was maybe a sandwich short of a picnic, but he, he didn't have it all together. But he lived next to a golf course, and he spent most of his time watching people play golf, but he had never played golf. And day after day, he just stood on his little chair with his iced tea watching men go by and their carts playing golf back and forth, you know. And uh, finally, he had an invitation. Someone stayed by and asked him what he was doing. So I love watching golf. And he says, uh, well, do you understand the game of golf? And he said, oh, yeah, I, I would love to play it. Well, what is playing golf? And he says, well, what you do in golf is you have this great opportunity to drive these little carts. And what you do is you hit this ball to determine where you're going to drive your cart. That's what golf's all about. <laughs> <laughs> and now, yeah. the reason I mention that is if you if you begin with a misunderstanding of mm. the gospel, it shapes everything. Yeah. It shapes That's how you true. live your faith, and you could have it yeah. with a you could begin at the wrong place or with a wrong perspective, or sadly, like Luther did, out of his own subjective struggle to deal with his feeling of of lostness that he you know put a new slant on the gospel that has so shifted everything you didn't have it all wrong but there's we want to look at that we don't you know our goal here is not to lambast good old luther but it's it's really getting down to the question as was mentioned in the opening what is the gospel? And in fact, Ken, we had an email this week, which gets it right to us. Dr. Howell and Marcus, in your study last week, you discussed Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am a Baptist and wonder whether Catholics understand what Paul meant by the gospel. Does he mean the same as we do? And this was from Rich. And Ken, maybe before we jump into the actual answer of that question, which we're going to do in a moment when we look at Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, maybe in general, just address the fact that the gospel isn't the same amongst all Christians. No, no, no that's true. And, and, the more in, and then the interesting question is, in, in what way is, is it different? And even among Protestant Christians, it's, it's not a different. I mean, for example, uh, people who are um, Pentecostal or charismatic, they'd say part of the gospel is to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is an experience of receiving the, you know, that they describe and you speak in tongues and so forth. And to them, that's part of the gospel. The church that was started, you know, I don't know when, maybe the beginning of the 20th century called the Four Square Gospel Church was the idea then that the other churches weren't completely weren't preaching the complete gospel. Um, and uh, and even in the more traditional lines, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the uh, Lutherans, the Baptists, they would have slightly different understandings of what that, what that gospel is. Um, you know, it's interesting um, in, in that regard. When I was a, when I was in graduate school, um, I was a simultaneously a pastor to college students in an evangel independent evangelical church that I was doing it part-time as I was finishing up my grad studies. And there was a one young man that I came uh, became somewhat close to. We were having lunch one day, and we were talking about Catholicism. And uh, I had said something to him, which I had completely forgotten about. And then after I became Catholic and he learned of it, he said, Ken, do you remember that day we were sitting in the student union 
uh, at the Indiana University, and you told me that if the Catholic Church ever came back to the gospel, we'd have to go back to it. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that I had said that, you know, back in, it was 1982 or so. But uh, but even then, God was clearly showing me the need for unity. And the important point here is that um, what I came to understand was actually that the Catholic Church had never left preaching the gospel. Oh, it had been submerged and it had been betrayed in various ways by individuals, but the church as a whole had never given up the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, for us as Catholic Christians, it's Jesus Christ, his merits alone on the cross, his resurrection. The uh, But it also includes being a member of his church, yeah. being because we are being baptized into Christ, we're automatically a member of his church. And that's one of the biggest differences between uh, between us and our Protestant brothers and sisters. And we'll look at that in a moment. I was thinking of something else, again, amongst our separated brethren, uh, how many different views of what's essential to the gospel. You know, kind of like that idea, well, is it about hitting the ball or is it about driving the cart? You know, what's the important thing? Yeah. Um, and uh, in Jeremiah chapter 33, uh, it, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. And then it goes on. And one of the things he says is that the Chaldeans are coming in to fight and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall smite in anger. And, but he goes on, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin. Well, there's some that their understanding of the gospel has to do with health and wealth and prosperity. Mm, and yeah, you know, exactly. they'll use a verse yeah. like that. And you know all the aspects of the gospel are about success, prosperity, about receiving fruit. And so it's important to understand what this phrase, the gospel, is. And Ken, I believe that the reason that Paul so quickly in his letter got to the topic of the gospel was because, as he mentions in Galatians 1, Already so early in the church, people were starting to rewrite the gospel. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, in other words, in that case, they're trying to, the Judaizers that were in Galatia. Now, in the case of Romans, we don't have any uh, particular heresy that Paul is fighting against, but we will find in chapter 2 that it's very clear that there's tension between Jew and Gentile in the Church of Rome as well. And he addresses that in chapter 2, particularly addressing his fellow Jews as not being judgmental uh, toward their, his, his, the Greek uh, brothers and sisters. Now, when you mention the gospel here, it's so true because, in fact, on our website, I think you people have it available to them to see the text that we're studying today, and the way that you've uh, the way that you've indented this, Marcus, is very good because it's clear that Paul gets only a verse or two into the text, and actually the first verse, and he sends the gospel of God, and then he goes to define what the gospel is. Now it's interesting if you look if the, if if you can look at that text the way you've indented it, it said that Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. And then a few lines down, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that this is the gospel concerning his son. And who is his son? Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The stuff that's in between, descended from David according to the flesh, designated the Son of God. Many scholars have said that this is probably an early confessional statement that was used in the church. So in other words, Paul is possibly drawing upon something that they already know. And he's saying, oh, yeah, you remember this son? Well, or see, the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, this is he was descended. And and they know that text already, perhaps because it was a confessional uh, formula that was used in the church. But the point that I want to make is that your focus upon the gospel here is not arbitrary because it's very clear that Paul's Paul's whole task in this letter is going to be divine. What is the gospel, both in its basic form and its implications for living a Christian life in a pagan society? All right. A couple things. Uh, again, as Dr. Hall mentioned on the website, uh, you, we always post the kind of planning notes that we use behind our study, and, and especially during this, this uh, study of Romans. Always there'll be... Uh, some kind of diagram of the text today that we're going to follow. Also today, you'll find up there a longer document in which uh, we did a a search through the New Testament for the phrase, the gospel. And the phrase gospel, the word gospel, which is basically good news, right, Ken? I mean, you can talk about the linguistics of that. That's right. Is in the New Testament 89 times. So, I mean, this idea is central all the way through. There's a flow through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, into the Acts, into the letters of Paul and Peter, although James and, and John, his letters, really doesn't mention the gospel, but um, nor even in his gospel. Uh, John doesn't use this phrase per se, but uh, the key there, Ken, as we get to it in a moment, is that whatever we mean by the gospel has to be something that could have been on the lips of Jesus. Because yeah, it says yeah. clearly in all the gospels that Jesus was preaching the gospel. It can't be only something that was on the lips of Paul or modern Christians. Yeah. Well, I think you can even go farther than that because if you look at verse 2, it's clear he says that this gospel was proclaimed beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the gospel was already at least implicit in in the Old Testament. And that's why Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 when he's beginning his public ministry as recorded in Luke chapter 4, he quotes from Luke, uh, excuse me, from Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings or to proclaim the gospel to the afflicted. And uh, as that's translated in the Septuagint, it's used in Luke, it's euangelizasthai, and that's the verb form of gospel. It means to proclaim the good news, the good tidings. So, it's in the very essential ministry of the Messiah as proclaimed or as um, predicted by the Old Testament prophets that he would bring good tidings to the poor. So you're absolutely right. It can't be something after Jesus or just after the resurrection. It's on the very lips of Jesus from the very beginning. You know, it reminds me of something else, Ken. Um, and you're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Dr. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Howell and uh, myself, Marcus Grodi. 
the, pro the proclamation of the gospel. You know, often we Catholics think that the, the only important thing in the Mass is the, is the communion of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. That the only place in the Mass you receive grace is in the receiving of Jesus' body, blood, and soul, divinity, in the Eucharist. And we believe that to be true. But that isn't the only important part of the Mass. There are two mm -hmm. essential parts of the Mass. There's the yes. Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And the center of the Liturgy of the Eucharist, of course, is the reception of the body and blood. But in the other half of the Mass is the proclamation mm -hmm. of the Gospel. I mean, that's yeah, absolutely that's so. essential to liturgy and the proclamation yeah. of the Word. And, you yeah. know, uh, we see that, as you just mentioned in Isaiah, that there's the thread throughout the entire Bible is the proclamation of the gospel. Well, it's also true. It's interesting. One spiritual writer uh, from the East, Nicholas Cabasilos, speaks of the reading of the, and the proclamation of the gospel by the priest as being a kind of purgation. It, it, it gets us out of the world and gets us ready to receive the Eucharist. So the gospel, uh, when it's properly proclaimed, is something that draws us closer to God. So it is no less essential to the full celebration of liturgy or the Mass uh, than the Eucharist itself. So, yeah, so that, for me, that really is exciting that we're, we're going to get into what this gospel is, this gospel of God. Okay, we've been kind of jumping around it, but let me read today's text. It's there before you if you're looking at it on the website. Uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ken, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I've, I've kind of divided up the scriptures today in our look at this in four areas. And the first, which on the planning sheet I've got designated in purple, is reducing this whole almost one long sentence into the, the minimum, which draws us to the idea that behind this is a reflection of the common greetings of the day in letters. I mean, you could reduce mm -hmm. this down to Paul, to all God's beloved in Rome, grace to you in peace. Yeah, and, and when you read ancient letters, both uh, in ancient Greek and in ancient Latin, you see exactly that structure. They Instead of, you know, we in letters today, we say, dear, dear so-and-so, and then we put our name at the end, right? So you have to go, you have to scroll down to the end of the email, or you have to turn <laughs> the page to get to see who their author is of the, of the letter, but they put it right up front. And... Uh, Oftentimes, if you read those ancient letters, what they will do is, identifying the writer at first, the writer will then say, okay, well, this is, uh, you know, this is Cicero, and I'm at my, I'm at my villa in Tuscany, or, I, or it's during this time of year, or this stage of life, or this event has happened. In other words, trying to give the information, information to the reader that will help, help the reader understand 
more who the author is and what the author is doing. Now remember, Paul had never seen these people in the flesh in Rome. He's going there for the very first time. So he's so he's what he's putting down is something that he considers to be most important. And what does he say? Well, as you put it out here in blue in the planning sheet, it's so it's very nicely put. He's the servant, one, he's the servant of Jesus Christ. Two, he's called to be an apostle. And three, he's set apart for the gospel of God. So he's identifying himself as this man who is a servant, called an apostle, and his purpose is for the gospel. Ken, I'm going to uh, put you on the line here. You and I both come from a Calvinist background. Yeah. Line seven in this opening, to all God's beloved in Rome. Mm-hmm. Who is he writing to? Is it just the yeah. predestined elect in Rome <laughs> or to everybody? Well, you know, he begins, he says, to all God's beloved. And who are God's beloved? Well, as I think anybody would, would want to say that these are the beloved, those that are beloved by God are those who are members of the church. And so he's writing to the members of the church. But notice that he adds very quickly, in, in addition to calling them the beloved, beloved by God, um, he calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. In other words, and you can take this two ways. They're called as God's holy people. They're already holy, and they're holy by virtue of being incorporated into the church via baptism. And you could also take it in a future sense. They're called to be holy. That is, that's the very goal of their life. And isn't that true? The beautiful analogy here is marriage, right? On the day that you ratify your marriage at the altar, you're married. The night you consummate your marriage, uh, you're married. And you're no less married that day than you are 50 years later. But nevertheless, learning to grow into what it means to be married takes an entire lifetime. So the same way about the Christian life. You're called, and yet you're you're called already, and you're called to be the saints of God. But that's going to get us into our discussion of the gospel, because in Jesus Christ we are saved. Yeah, right. But we must, in the future, be saints. You know, we're called to be holy. It's a both and. It's a it's a like as, as Paul would say in Ephesians one thirteen, in which he's referring to. Uh, the baptism uh, that we've received in the Holy Spirit, we received the baptism, he says that's a guarantee, a guarantee. But he doesn't yeah. mean that it's not something that if we don't live according to the calling yeah. by grace that we could not turn away from or lose. That's why yeah. in, in Romans, excuse me, in Revelations, in, in almost every book of the New Testament, Paul and James and John and Peter all remind the people of their need to live out that which, that what they are in Jesus Christ. Well, you, I think I'm so glad that you said this about in the New Testament, the word salvation as a verb, sozo, uh, other words related to it, they're all put in three tenses. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And we're going to see that in chapter 5 
when we get into chapter 5 later on, because he says we've been justified by faith, but then he says we're enduring and we are, we're, we're being perfected. And then he says, uh, toward about verse 10 or 11, he says, well, having been justified, we shall be saved. That is future. Salvation is also in the future. So you can speak of salvation as both past, present, and future. And that's what we want to try to do is to is to see the whole gospel, uh, every aspect of it, throughout um, throughout this book. Why was it so important, Ken, for him to for Paul to mention those three things? He could have said, you know, as Paul, I'm writing to you from Corinth, which is where he believe he wrote from, um, or you know, I'm writing to you with with the snow around me here in this little Greek village, but yeah. instead he emphasized his servanthood, his apostleship, and you know, his being set apart, which is the idea of being holy. I mean, that's what being, mm-hmm. that's the bond, the, the underlying of being holy. He's not calling himself holy, but he's recognizing that all of us were called, we were set apart in Jesus Christ, pulled away from the world. But why did he see such a need to write the, the first sentence of this letter to these mm-hmm. people he'd never met? Well, I think there's I think there's two ways. One, we can look at this as distinctive of Paul, particularly. That is, that it was he, in in one sense, who was the the preeminent servant, apostle, and one set apart. But it also applies to everybody else. So he's setting it up so that they will understand that they too are servants and apostles and set apart. The servant part of this, I think, is really important. Because when he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ, a doulos of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is the master to whom he is responsible and is the master. So if they have a complaint about Paul, take it to Jesus Christ because he's the master. Now, we, we tend to read the word slave and some, we, we tend not to translate it, but the word doulos could have meant slave. Now, we tend, because slavery has a bad connotation and so forth, but you have to understand that slavery in the ancient world wasn't necessarily degradating, or it wasn't denigrating to a person. The famous philosopher Epictetus was a slave. He was freed, but he was a slave, and he was a highly educated man. So Paul is saying his loyalty, first of all, is to Jesus Christ. And, and as he said, no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Jesus yeah. and love. I mean, that's yeah. his calling. All right, Ken, let's take a pause there, and we'll come back in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture, coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network. See you in a bit. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell, 
or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is uh, Marcus Grodi with, with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're looking today at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. There's lots here. And uh, uh, Ken, we were, I kind of interrupted you before the break to, uh, we were looking at, you know, Paul gives these three descriptions of himself. And why does he feel a need to do this? And uh, I would like to pose you know, one other idea along with what you said, and that is Paul in another letter talks about a thorn in the flesh. And, and what he deals with is, he never dis- defines what that is, uh, but it's it's a part of his character that he, he deals with. He prays that God would take it away from him. And, uh, you know, it took a lot for a, a man like Paul to do what he did, uh, to be such a great apostle, mm-hmm. uh, missionary, and to do all that, and to get up in front of people. And he admits several places that it's not because of his great preaching, because you know, we, we know that he put some people to sleep who fell out of windows, you know, a bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. you know, I've often thought that maybe one of Paul's struggles was with just this issue of insecurity uh, about, which many people have, you know, uh, the struggle, the, mm-hmm. the inner voices that are always there trying to put him down, trying to challenge him, which kind of yeah. come out in Galatians when he, when he, a little bit of pride almost describes him confronting you know, the, uh, the the highest of the apostles and Peter. I wish we had Peter's side of that story. But but yet there's some, we recognize that even in Second Corinthians when he has to defend who he is, that part of the struggle that Paul always had was being, uh, what's the phrase, you know, a, a late apostle, um, one that Christ came to late, he wasn't one of the original 12, and so there's a sense in which he always has to kind of make sure his credentials are out there to his hearers so that they know that he is speaking of authority because there are false teachers all around that are claiming authority. And I think this is key because in Romans later we'll look at Paul emphasizes the necessity of someone being sent Romans yeah, 10, yeah, exactly. to have an authority to proclaim the gospel. Yeah, and of course, that's what the word apostle means. Apostolos in Greek is a noun that comes from the verb apostello, 
which means to send. It means to send out, but it, in its context, in, in Greek usage, it means to send with a commission. So when he says he's a kletos apostolos, he's a called apostle, he's called to be an apostle, that means that he's sent with a very specific message that he is to proclaim. You know, um, we might suppose, I think rightly, that Paul, in, by the standards of his day, was an extremely learned man. He quotes on Mars Hill from the Greek poets. Greek was his native language, but probably Hebrew and Aramaic as well, certainly Hebrew because he read the scriptures. Um, he studied at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, he tells us, uh, Luke tells us in Acts. And yet, that's not his glory. That's not his, uh, his boast. His boast is simply that Jesus Christ and him crucified is what he wants to proclaim. So that's why he says, I'm called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart. God marked me off for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is, that is his whole driving mission. When you look at very successful people, uh, whether it's in business or in education or whatever it may be, you'll notice that they're almost driven by a passion, right? They're driven by a passion uh, that is... Um, that, that is singular and keeps them focused. And that's what Paul certainly was, a man who was really focused upon getting the gospel out there. Yes, I, I, when I think of Paul having this struggle with insecurity, um, to me it's akin to when a person's whole life is built around what they've accumulated, the stuff, their successes, yeah, their, yeah. Their, their credentials, that's who they are, and they've always understood themselves in that way. And then they have an authentic conversion of mind and heart to Jesus Christ. And all yeah. of a sudden they discover that all that stuff is dung, which is what Paul calls it. It's all dung. Yeah. It's all yeah. worthless except for knowing Jesus Christ. And so this, the insecurity is the, is the continual battle that we have for the rest of our lives of surrendering mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ mm -hmm. versus the temptation to once again boast for all the stuff that we get our credentials, but no, it's always, no, 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 no. It's Jesus Christ. So not only do I believe is Paul trying to pass his credentials along to these people, but it's a self-reminder to Paul. Okay. I'm a servant. Mm -hmm. I'm an apostle. Yeah. I'm set apart. Yeah. That's what's important. Well, and, and, and that really, what Paul is saying about himself applies to all of us. By virtue of our baptism, strengthened through confirmation and daily walk of the Christian life with Eucharist, with confession, in the sacraments of marriage or holy orders, each one of us is called to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And I love the way that the Catholic Church at funerals, when, they're, when we're praying for the soul of the one who has died, we speak in the second person to God and say, Oh God, your servant. We speak of the dead as your servant. Because each one of us is called to, excuse me, to servanthood. And we're called to be apostles, not in the strict sense that Paul was or the twelve were, but in, the, in that basic sense of we're called to go out and to proclaim the gospel. You know, one of the greetings, or one of the dismissals that a priest can give at the end of Mass is, go and proclaim the gospel. 
Each one of us is a missionary. No matter what area of life we work in and live in and move in, we're all called to that. Each one of us is set apart to let people know that good news. And so <clears throat> these things apply to each one of us, no matter what our station or, or place in life. Uh, it seems to me a good symbol. It's true in the Western Church, in the Mass, as well as the Eastern Church, although I'm not as familiar with the Eastern Church, Ken. But when, when the priest and the deacons and the acolytes enter the church, what are they carrying high? They're carrying the cross of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. but they're carrying the gospel. And it's mm -hmm. honored, and it's laid on the altar. And then uh, it's treated with great reverence. Even in a high mass, you have the, the incense uh, around, around the gospel. Around the gospel yeah. And then when the reading of the gospel, we stand. Even in the Liturgy of the Hours, when, you, when the gospel's read, you would normally stand. And it isn't yeah. merely showing reverence to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's what at the core, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the center of our faith. And uh, that's been the, the thread throughout the history of the church. Now, Ken, in the rest of this passage, we have really two big subjects, it seems to me. One is the gospel, and the other is Jesus. Because in that whole section that I've got marked out in green in the passage, beginning with verse, the end of verse 1 all the way through verse 6, Paul... I mean, he can't he can't contain himself. You know, he, he before he <laughs> yeah. gets into this huge theological discussion of this long letter, he can't even. It's a long sentence, one huge long sentence about the gospel and Jesus. And I'm wondering, Ken, maybe before we even get back into the gospel, let's let's look at what he says about Jesus and why what he says about Jesus in this first passage is so crucial, even to the foundation of what he'll say for the rest of the letter. Well, the New Testament scholars, uh, I suppose it was about uh, 50 years ago, but it continues to go on. They are looking in the New Testament for statements, for formulas that might be considered like confessional or creedal formulas. Uh, we do know from very early times that the, the Apostles' Creed that we have, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we do know that that goes back into the very early second century of the church and possibly even right back to the apostles themselves. Well, is some New Testament scholars have said that verses 3 and 4 uh, are like an early creed. In other words, this gospel, it says, is concerning or is about um, the Son. His son, who came from the seed of David according to the flesh, that's the first half of it, and then verse 4, that he was designated the Son of God uh, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's easy to read those two verses as one referring to his humanity and the other to his divinity. Uh, but the problem, and, and the first one does seem to refer to that, right? He, Paul is trying to say in verse 3 that this son is the one that came from the seed of David according to the flesh. That is to say, he was truly a man. He wasn't a phantom. 
It wasn't, as the docetist said, it wasn't God looking like a man. He truly was a man. And he wasn't just a man. He was a Jewish man from the seed of David. The difficulty comes with the second part, and that is in verse 4, where he says he was, it translated in the version that you, you used here, designated son of God. And that verse, that word, horizo in Greek, translated designated, could be done, it translated several different ways. I was just thinking, as it says before, um, in uh, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, there's certainly many places, Ken, that we could show this whole history. But again, yeah, it reminded me of Jeremiah 33, when he makes this promise, uh, in those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the Lord. And then in verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt sacrifices, to burnt cereal offerings and to make sacrifices forever. We see the prophecy of the seed yeah, of exactly. David leading to the yeah. Messiah. Well, and you, well, that was a beautiful verse that you just quoted because it shows both the promise of an of a uh, everlasting king and an everlasting priesthood. And where you see that coming together so beautifully is Psalm 110, where it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's the kingship. But then in verse 4 of that same psalm, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which, as we know, the writer of Hebrews quotes to prove that Jesus is the superior and eternal priesthood. So Jesus comes as the fulfillment. As a man, he comes as the fulfillment. He is the eternal king, and he is the eternal priest. Ken, uh, there's a question here, verse 4, as you mentioned earlier, though, there's something there that really emphasizes why sola scriptura and private interpretation have been a danger since the beginning of the church. It was never the norm. There was always the recognition of Scripture as a part of the wider deposit of faith because verse 4 says that Jesus Christ was designated Son of God. And, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean he wasn't the Son of God before? Something yeah. that would changed? Designated kind of applies that when we normally use that. I mean, in a sense, yeah. it's through this private interpretation of that verse that led to some of the early heresies of the church. Well, you're right, and, and uh, I'd like to think that we could get a better English word for the Greek word horizo that might solve the problem, but I'm afraid we can't, if we're going to be honest <laughs> with the text. What it, what the word horizo means, it's, it's related to the Greek noun horos, which means a boundary. And so uh, what it's saying is it's, it's a way of marking out a boundary. So it's saying that he was marked out as the Son of God in power by the Spirit of Holiness. And that could easily be interpreted in just the way that you said, namely that he wasn't the Son of God before, but Jesus, God took this man, Jesus, who was according to the flesh of the seed of David, and he established him, he designated him to be the Son of God. Well, of course, the Catholic Church, as well as many other traditional Christians, 
uh, would say that Jesus Christ was eternally the Son of God. So in what sense was it the resurrection? Uh, here's the way I look at verse 4, and I think it's consistent with the church throughout the ages, that what, what this is saying is that Jesus Christ was proclaimed to be the Son of God. It's not that he became the Son of God, but that he was proclaimed to be the Son of God through the resurrection, that people couldn't recognize him as Jesus, as the Son of God until the resurrection. But that power of that resurrection proclaimed him to be uh, the Son of God. The other thing to remember here too, Marcus, and this is a good lesson in what you're referring to about Sola Scriptura, oftentimes in Christian history, words are used not with precise technical meaning, all right? Like here, marked out, designated. It's not being used technically to mean something like later. Later, the church will define what this means. And what they'll define it to mean is that that he was eternally the Son of God, and so it'll use words in a technical sense like nature and being to refer to the eternal nature of the Son of God. But here's an early confession where that precision of language is not necessarily being used. Of course, we see in this whole passage the Trinity, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Holiness. That's all referenced there. We could go into discussion about that. We'll probably get to it later. Let's let's jump into the discussion of the gospel, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his Son. And then later we see that our Lord Jesus, through whom we've re- we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. Ken, what is this gospel that Paul's referring uh, to? Well, you know, in, in a sense, if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, as St. Augustine said we should, uh, we can look at verse 5 and get some kind of help here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It says that we receive grace and apostleship to bring about or for the obedience of faith. The gospel is the proclamation of the faith that brings people in obedience to Christ. And this is why we would insist that a true biblical understanding of faith is not simply trust, but it is an obedient trust. It is following Jesus Christ. It is, to use a more Protestant-like language, to not only make him your Savior, but to make him your Lord. To follow him with everything. You know, there was this debate in evangelicalism about whether Jesus could just be Savior or whether he must also be Lord. And for us as Catholics, that debate does not even get off the ground. Because for us, we look at the fullness of the faith, and that means you've got to have Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, the fact that many Catholics don't uh, follow him as Lord, well, that's the struggle of life. We want to help every Catholic to do that. But in, but that's the goal, is to have Jesus Christ as Lord. And the faith brings about the obedience. And I think that's one way of understanding the obedience of faith. When we come to faith, we become obedient to God. Here's something we'll discuss more in the future of this program is that over time, especially after the Reformation, Romans, the book of Romans became interpreted as a divided book, kind of a before and after, a plan A, plan B. 
And many saw the first part of Romans as indicative of plan A, which was essentially salvation through works. But then after the death and resurrection of Christ and the coming of grace, then we have this plan B. Since we couldn't win God's favor through our works, therefore, and again, this is Luther's perspective, since there's nothing we can do because of our depraved nature as a result of the fall, Everything is by grace. And so we have this application of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. Everything's by grace through faith and not through works. And so we have this grid placed on the second part of, that, of Romans. So of it's only by faith in that the gospel, according to the Reformers, is that it's all about this justification that has been imputed to us totally as a gift of grace, having nothing to do with us. In fact, even to the extreme of Calvin saying that this imputation of salvation through grace had, had so little to do with us that was, it was imputed at the beginning of time, predestined mm-hmm. uh, before we were ever even a thought in the mind of God. And so here we are. And we want to see that, no, this verse 5 of of chapter 1 is not merely a plan A, but as you pointed out last week, the obedient faith is, all, is also in the last chapter of Romans. Exactly. It is, yeah. it, it is a recognition, as you said a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Abraham as a father of faith, that it wasn't merely that Abraham, when he lived in Ur, believed in God, but that because he believed in God, Abraham got up out of his lazy boy and went in obedience to the yeah. promised land. I mean, he headed in that direction. It's, and, and it gets us to the idea that when we look at Matthew, for example, chapter 4 or chapter 9, when the gospel says, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel. Yeah. The mm-hmm. gospel writer says preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel yeah. of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. And there, uh, Ken, we see also the reference to the fulfillment of the Isaiah passage, that the proclamation of the gospel was bringing about healing, body and soul. And so really, we need to understand the gospel always in relationship to the kingdom, the gospel of the yeah. kingdom. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's a very important point because what it shows or what it what it underscores is that this this has been God's plan all along, is to proclaim the fullness of Himself, and He does that in His Son, and that's going to bring about a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of body. It's going to be the fullness of the kingdom. Now, one of the puzzling things uh, that we'll have to ask the Lord is why He chose not to make that kingdom in its fullness now as opposed to later in the eschaton in the final end of history but for whatever reason our our lord has asked us to endure this situation so that we can finally come to that that uh that end of history and that gospel of the kingdom means that as we preach the gospel the kingdom is coming in our world today the kingdom is not just something future it's here already. It's here through the church. It's here through individual lives and family. 
But as Pope Benedict pointed out in his Jesus book, which is so very profound, when he asked the question, well, so where is the kingdom? And his basic answer is, sounds simple, but it's really profound when you think about it. He says, the kingdom is wherever the king is. In other words, Jesus Christ, the king, is he in the Eucharist? There's the kingdom. Is he in the church? There's the kingdom. Is he in your home? There's the kingdom. Is your school? He's in your kingdom. Is he in your business? Then he's in the kingdom. You see, the kingdom is there because the king is there. There, uh, there was a Jesuit writer 200 plus years ago by the name of Father Grow. Uh, he was kicked out of France during the revolution. And he has a number of books which are available online. You can find the text from, from Father Grow. And in one of his books called The Marks of, I think it was called The Marks of Discipleship, he addresses, which was a problem during France 200 years ago, was this struggle between the Huguenots and, and the Catholics. And he addressed the problem that people were always focused the gospel message on the issue of salvation. The gospel is about salvation. It's being forgiven my sins and I'm saved. It's all about being saved. And Father Gross says that's the wrong emphasis because the problem with always seeing everything through the context of being saved ultimately is a self-centered focus about me being saved. And he basically said, no, there are three more important things. One, giving glory to God. Number two, loving your neighbor. Number three, becoming Christ-like and holy. And then four, leave salvation to him. Let him worry about it. You focus on these things. And I think that gets us to this gospel. The gospel is about being forgiven our sins. It's about being saved. It's about all those things received by grace. But the focus is not that as much as it is becoming a part of the kingdom. The gospel is that's been all through the whole Bible and the prophets yeah. is the coming of the kingdom that we become a part of through Jesus Christ. And the way you become a part of the kingdom is by being cleansed of our sins so we become adopted yeah. sons and daughters of God. Well, I think the, word, the language that Paul is using here is exactly that. It's the obedience of faith. And when the nations, among all the nations of the world, become obedient to the faith, that is to Christ, they become a part of the kingdom. So the kingdom comes to their land. And that's what we hope and desire for every nation on earth. All right. Thanks, Ken. Well, this is a quick summary of the first part of Romans. And uh, as Paul says in verse 7, we're called to be saints. We're called to uh, recognize the gift of the kingdom in our life that we receive through Jesus Christ and by grace that has uh, freed us from sin. But we are called to be holy through the obedience of faith and with our goal of being saints. Not just so we have a name in our book, but so we can stand without embarrassment before God. Ken, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks. And all of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Look forward to being with you again next week. God bless.